All right, good morning. I'm going to get things rolling here. I think I'm recording. Um, let me pray and, and we'll jump in. Father, we are thankful. <clears throat> thankful for the privilege to be here this morning. Thankful that your mercies are new every morning, that we get to hear from you as you speak in your word and by your spirit to us. Pray that your spirit would be at work in us so that we would appreciate, be thankful for the privilege, the immense privilege of being able to hear you speak. Pray that as we study Hosea, that he would be at work giving us eyes to see and ears to hear what he is saying to the churches, that we would give thanks, that we would learn from the example um, of Israel, what happened among them in their history, and, and how that pointed to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I, I want to tie the themes as best I can of Hosea to Hosea 4 through 14. I, I, I hope to do that by giving you a little bit of an introduction to it again. I'm not going to do what I did last week, but just briefly, if you remember, our theme is uh, largely stolen from Graham Goldsworthy and, and Vaughn Roberts, not because it's the most complete theme, but because it at least gives us some handles, which is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And um, Adam was God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Here he was as God's people, in, re- representing all of God's people in the garden, God's place. And literally, Genesis 1.28, after he's created, it says, and God blessed them being Adam and Eve, and so they're under his rule and blessing. Adam sins, Um, he's kicked out of God's place, he is in that sense no longer God's people, and he is under the curse. Now he is, he is, seems quite clear in the text that he is redeemed, he trusts the Lord and he's forgiven, but the Lord makes a promise in the midst of the curse. The promise is that there will be a seed of the woman who comes who will crush the head of the serpent and save the people. And so um, we start to see that seed, uh, the, look, the search for that seed narrow down. We come to Abraham and the promise made to Abraham that that seed is going to come from his family, um, from his nation. And Abraham has promised three things, land, place, seed, people, and blessing to dwell with God. God dwells with us and we dwell with him to be, he's our God and we're his people. So he's promised those land, seed, and blessing, and that blessing will go to all nations through his seed. And so that's narrowed down as we come to Israel under the Mosaic covenant, as God makes a covenant with Israel as a nation, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he makes this covenant with Israel as a nation, a church state, he makes a temporary national covenant with them. In this temporary national covenant, governs their church state of Israel, which is a church state. It's a theocracy, right? So it governs the church state of Israel. Um, This temporary national covenant we know is the covenant with Moses. And um, it governs it in such a way that it's pointing them forward. Paul calls it in Galatians 3 a pedagogue, pointing them forward to the coming heir, the coming seed of the woman, the coming seed of Abraham. It's pointing them forward to him, right? Right? And so that, that covenant has, um, if you will, um, I'm going to call it tripartite. It might be a little strong of a word, but 
uh, we'll say there, there, are, there are three kinds of law there. There's the moral law that's reflected there that's always been God's law, right? You shall have no other gods before me, what we call the ten words or the ten commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images, not like those pagans do to worship me. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Lord, uh, I'm going to call it the Lord's day, the Sabbath holy. You, you, you know, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The sixth commandment, don't murder. The seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. The eighth commandment, don't steal. The ninth commandment, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. The tenth commandment, don't covet, right? And so we have those ten words, that moral law. That's always true, okay? Then you have the second kind of law, which is this law that we might call a civil law. How we take the moral law of God and apply it to the specific national uh, situation of Israel in their day-to-day life. How you govern the, the, the civilization um, of Israel. And so we see those kind of sundry civil laws, right? You know, and you guys are familiar with these. If your neighbor's ox falls in a ditch, do X. If you gore your neighbor's ox on accident, this is what you owe, etc. You guys remember those kinds of laws? Okay. And then you have the third kind of law, which is this law that has to do with ceremonial law. Um, you're not going to touch, touch a dead body or you're unclean. You know, so we think about the clean and unclean laws. Um, and it, we're also then given a sacrificial system. Here's a tabernacle you're going to build. God's going to dwell there. Here are the sacrifices you're going to participate in those. Here's a liturgical calendar that tells you how you are going to worship throughout the year. Here's a Passover celebration for coming out of the Exodus, etc., etc., etc. So Israel's supposed to live under that covenant. They're supposed to go into the promised land, conquer the promised land, wipe out all their enemies, and then they're supposed to live as a blessing to all nations there. Um, Davidic king comes eventually. And now they've got a king there. And that king is supposed to be a blessing to the nations. He sins, etc., etc. And Israel, in, as a nation state in the promised land, sins again and again and again against the Mosaic covenant. And so exile starts to get promised to them, right? Because in that covenant given to Moses, there were blessings if they kept it. And what? Curses if they violated it. And so the curse of exile is coming for them. Now, if you remember at this point in history when we come to Hosea, there's a no- northern kingdom of the Jewish people or nation state called Israel, sometimes also called Ephraim after the strongest tribe, kind of the most dominant tribe in the northern kingdom, Ephraim, that tribe. Um, it's called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes called Samaria. And then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, right? That's where Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom of Judah. When we get to Hosea, he's at approximately 722 BC. He is uh, prophesying the exile of the northern kingdom, and then he begins to prophesy the exile of the southern kingdom. Right? Both the northern kingdom gets carried off by who? Which nation carries them off? Conquers them? Assyria. Southern kingdom by 100 years later by Babylon. Okay? Roughly 100 years later by Babylon. And so this is being prophesied here. The themes here in Hosea, if you remember, are spiritual adultery, right? Which is, which is another way of talking about idolatry. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt, the Lord says, I was your husband. I said, don't have any other gods, and you went cheating on me, committing adultery against me. Follow? Okay. Um, 
you went cheating on me. And so he has this theme of spiritual adultery. And that's set up in a parable. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the parable is untrue. Okay? But, but it, it, is, it does function as a parable. The parable at the beginning is um, that Hosea is to do what? Go and do what? Take a wife. Who's what? Who's a prostitute. Okay? He's supposed to live out in his life, um, if you will, what's happened to um, what the Lord at the hand of Israel. He's to go marry a prostitute named Gomer, and then he's to deal with her and her children um, in a specific way in that life, that, if you will, that marriage between Hosea and Gomer forms a parable in the first three chapters telling you essentially what's happening between God and Israel. Make sense? Okay. So as we come in um, to Hosea 4 through 14, we're seeing the spiritual adultery, the violation, the curse of God on Israel for their violation of the covenant with Moses. Um, and then there are these promises of there's this coming latter day, this coming end times where there will be blessings, um, inclusion of the Gentiles through a new David, a new covenant, in keeping with his promises to Abraham. So you see things about the day of the Lord, cosmic judgment, cosmic salvation, etc. With that said, um, Hosea 4 through 14 is now going to set forth the Lord's view of Israel's sin as well as his coming judgment and salvation. Um, so uh, that's what we're going to look at as we start in Hosea uh, 4 through 14. So hopefully that 10 minute quick overview catches you all up. Let's look at Hosea 4. Um, and verse 1. Kind of coming in. And notice this. I have an outline, but you can't probably read it. See, that's super helpful for you back there, isn't it? Sorry about that. Um, I'll have to work on my outlining skills for the PowerPoint in the future. Um, notice what I say there. If you can't see it, it's fine. Um, I can send it to you, or we'll hopefully post it on the website. But um, general... The introduction here in 4, 1 through 3 is a general indictment of the nation. In other words, what you're getting right out of the gate, what I'm saying is the first three verses of chapter 4 are giving you the general indictment against the nation, specifically the northern kingdom, but that will come to include the southern kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel. What else did I say the northern kingdom of Israel is called? Samaria. Samaria and or, and also? Yeah, Ephraim or Ephraim after the name of the strongest tribe of the northern kingdom. So you're having the condemnation of the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom of Israel, which is called Judah, ends up getting wrapped up at some point. But remember, why are they being blasted by the Lord here? What's that? Yeah, spiritual adultery, violation of the covenant. Now, so you know, there are two kind of parables happening there. One is... Israel will be compared to Hosea's adult, adulterous wife, Gomer. Okay? The other is, Israel will be compared to um, the children of prostitution. You guys follow me on that? Okay? So there's the first generation of Israel who's adulterous, and then there's the children from that adulterous generation. You guys follow me on that? First generation who violates God's covenant and chases after other gods. Um, and the, the wife, if you will, of Israel, of God, sorry, Israel. And then there's the children of that whore wife. Um, 
the, the, the other generations of Israel. And so keep in mind that you're going to see him sometimes referred to as children and indicted as you're the offspring of that whore. And then sometimes you're just going to be called, they're going to be called the whore. Make sense? Okay. Hosea is okay to, to call them, it seems, either one. You're either the, the whore herself or you're the, the whore's children. Okay. Either way, it's bad. Does it make sense? All right. So verse one, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Notice the language here. First, you have this language of seed. Remember I told you Abraham's promised land, seed, and blessing. Okay? Um, So here's the thing. O children of Israel. What's that emphasizing? Abraham's what? Seed. Okay? Here's his offspring. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of uh, of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the what? The land, okay? There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. Um, steadfast love is that Hebrew word from which that we, you guys have probably heard hesed, which is the idea of covenantal love. It's the kind of love in which you stay committed, committed to the covenant, right, that's made. Uh, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Now, the point isn't that they're not aware of God, okay? Otherwise, the prophecies would make no sense to them. So what does it mean by no knowledge of God in the land? What kind of knowledge are we talking about here? Intellectual knowledge? What's that? It's a relational knowledge. It's an actual relational knowledge. It's, it's the same kind of thing you can say to a guy who's professed to be a believer who lives in total unrepentance all the time and you can say you don't know the lord or i fear that you don't know the lord i know him i know genesis through revelation i know all the gospel doctrines etc yeah you know about him as j.i packer says the beginning of knowing god you may know about god but do you know god right that's what we're talking about here when it says no knowledge of god in the land now look at what he lists Verse 2, there is swearing. What commandment are we violating? Three. Yep, the third commandment, right? Lying, which commandment? Nine, good. Murder, which commandment? Six, good. Stealing, eight. And committing adultery, seven, okay? And the swearing could be even a violation of six, depending on who the swearing is going toward, right? If it's toward another man, in other words, you're swearing at or cursing another man, Jesus will call that kind of behavior in the Sermon on the Mount, what? What will he call it? What? Huh? Well, he'll call it damnable, but what does he compare it to? Murder, right? You hate your brother in your heart, you're murder. So, so, so theoretically, we could have the sixth, the seventh, right? Um, the eighth, the ninth, and if, all, all included in there. Okay? Um, now, they, they break all bounds. Notice that. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, um, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Okay? So what you have is, you have... An adulterous people, 
uh, an idolatrous people who are showing their adultery, their spiritual adultery, by way of sin. That's how it's shown. You guys understand that? How do you show spiritual adultery? You violate the law of God. If you're violating the law of God, you are committing spiritual adultery. Okay? Just as certain as you have a covenant with your spouse, and if your spouse is out um, sinning against your covenant, you, you guys follow me here? Okay? Same kind of language. All right? Now, he says, you're doing these kinds of things, and therefore, um, the land is mourning. When the land is mourning, and, and these things are, and the people who dwell in it are languishing, and even the beasts and the birds and the fish are not doing well, that's what we call the curse on the land. You guys follow me on that? The kinds of things that were promised in Leviticus as a curse to the people if they violated the covenant. Okay? That's sort of the general indictment of the nation. You're basically a whore nation who's violating my covenant and now under my curse. Clear enough? Okay, now, let's look at the next statement. Was that that bad, huh, Bo? <laughs> I just messed with you. I just messed with you. I know, I know. Okay, look at number four. Uh, the, now we're going to hear an indictment largely against the priests. The prophets will come as well. Yet, so, so if you will, the covenant's being shattered here, and we're going to see the law rejected, and you're going to see this language against the priests and the prophets to some degree, and some ways the people. Verse 4, Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Okay, he comes after the priest first, and, and largely the high priest here. The high priest is supposed to be the one that mediates between man and God, right? Um, but here he's a lawbreaker. You shall stumble by day. The, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. What's the prophet do? Speaks to the people on whose behalf? God's behalf. So now the priest who brings the people on, on behalf of the people, brings them to the Lord, is is being indicted, and the prophet who speaks to the people on behalf of the Lord is being indicted. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased... The more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. In other words, who's, you know who's feeding on the sin of the people? The, the, the religious leaders are. Feeding on the sin of the people. In some way, they're using the sin of the people to enrich themselves. That's what he's getting at here. They've forgotten the law. Look at verse 9. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord. Now they've forsaken the Lord to what end? Look what he goes on to say. Here's, here's their sort of corrupt religion. You ready? So they have, they've abandoned the, lo- the, the law of the Lord. Right? They've essentially rejected the law of God in this, if you will, 
outline of the, how they've shattered the covenant, right? How they violated the covenant. The priests and prophets and people have all rejected God's law. Clear enough? Okay. Now he's going to go on and talk about how they have a religion that's completely corrupt as a result. Look what he says. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. What's he mean there? It says they inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. It's awesomely funny, but what? Huh? Yeah. They're, they're carving idols and then asking them questions. He's like, you're asking a question of a piece of wood. How stupid is that, right? He's just essentially mocking them, you know? <laughs> and you, have a, you make a walking staff out of that wood, and now you think it's the, the walking staff is speaking for God? You know, you're nuts. You've lost it. So you see what he's saying, okay? Um, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whores and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. To sacrifice the cult prostitute is essentially to go to a pagan temple, make a sacrifice, and sleep with those pagan prostitutes. It was normal in ancient Near Eastern religion, and even in Rome by the, in the first century, that the cult temples would have prostitutes. You would go there and participate in orgies. Um, uh, it, they also incidentally spoke in ecstatic tongues. Did you know that? First century, um, if you went to a cult... Um, they would say, they, sp- they speak in ecstatic tongues, that you, you go to an orgy, everybody speaks like gibberish that's given to them supernaturally. Um, they called it tongues. Um, and they would speak in that, and they would sleep with the cult prostitutes, participate in the cult meals, etc. Um, and in the 20th century, Christians thought that would be a good idea to, to add just at least part of that, the speaking in ecstatic tongues. Um, and call that a gift from God. That would have been shocking in the first century to call that particular thing a gift from God because that, that is, in fact, a pagan practice, not a Christian practice. The speaking in tongues and acts is not ecstatic utterances and gibberish. It's actual known languages in which you're preaching the gospel that people know. Big difference. Um, so, just to be clear... It's not that that kind, you know, that kind of nonsense that happens in the charismatic world where they speak in ecstatic utterances and it's not a language at all, okay? It's not only, not only is that, uh, did that, when people say, did that cease in the fir- at the apostolic age? That not only, did, uh, no, it didn't cease the apostolic age because it was never a Christian thing to do. You follow me on that? Always been a pagan thing to do. Never a Christian thing to do, Right? So it never had to cease. What stopped is prophetic utterance. That's why we don't have any more Bible texts. Follow me? Okay. But that, that sort of thing never was Christian in the first place. It didn't stop. Christians just syncretized and added it to our repertoire of craziness in our own sort of spiritual adultery. All right, verse 15. Though you play the whore, o Israel... 
Let not Judah become guilty. Enter into Gilgal. Um, enter not, sorry, into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth, Beth-Avon and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim, okay, notice that again. Israel being identified by its strongest tribe is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings and they shall be ashamed because their sacrifices. In other words, notice what's happened. They violated God's law and they have gone into a kind of corrupt religion. Clear enough? Okay. They violated God's law and they've gone into a kind of corrupt religion. Now he's going to come after the, the leadership expressly. Look at chapter 5. He's going to say, you've rejected the law. You've entered a, a corrupt religion. In other words, the moral law of God. Okay, you've rejected the Ten Commandments. You've entered into a kind of corrupt pagan religion. Um, and you're trying to wrap that in with, by the way, with the Mosaic religion. Right? And trying to make them the two ones. We call it syncretism, mixing of two religions to make a third thing that is in many ways worse than what the other two were independently. Right? And so you've tried to do that. And then the, now he's going to come after the leadership expressly. Ver, chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter and I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Okay. So you see this condemnation now of Israel's leaders. The, they violated the law as a people and his leadership. They've gone into a kind of false syncretistic religion, idolatrous religion as a people um, and as a leadership, and now the leaders are being condemned. Now, so you see their, if you will, moral, ethical, religious state. You guys follow me on that? Now he's going to come after their politics. In other words, their government. So I put there, um, this isn't, by the way, this is not written by me. I, I, this outline is not mine. Um, I give attribution at the end. I think the guy's name is David Hubbard. But the politics run amok is going to, is going to stretch, stretch across two chapters. He's just going to talk about their um, sinful politics. I just want to look at a couple of selections of that. Um, look at verse um, 8 of chapter 5. We'll start sort of the first selection on that. Blow the horn in Gabeah, the trumpet 
and Ramah. You guys know where Gabeah is, right? Why is Gabeah significant in Israel's history? Anybody remember? This is where um, the tribe of Benjamin, I believe, um, practices the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that in Judges, where they become like Sodom and Gomorrah? Major downfall at Gabeah. Um, sound the alarm at Beth Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Well, there you go. Um, in other words, they're following Benjamin in that sin. That's not good, right? They're becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the days of pun- in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Okay, so there's the northern and southern kingdom. There's no dry rot in your house is not good. Okay, nor moths. Um, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to the Lord. Nope. Went to who? Assyria. And sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Okay, what's happened is they've turned to the politics of pagan nations, the leaders of pagan nations, rather than to the Lord. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. You hear the promise of exile coming for both the northern and southern kingdom. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So when will the Lord return? I, I, I mean, he's going to return again to his place until when? At what time will the, he's going to withdraw from them, if you will? Um, until what time? Until they repent. Right? Until they repent. Okay? Um, I'm going to carry them off in exile and I'm going, to, I'm going to withdraw from them essentially until they repent. Right? It's the judgment of the Lord coming upon them. Now look at chapter 6. Interesting language here that comes in in verse 1. Um, there's kind of a weak repentance here but also a, a pointing forward to something greater. It's an interesting passage scholars struggle over. But look at verse, just, we're going to look at 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Sounding like repentance, right? Sounding like it? Here they're calling, come, let us return to the Lord. Okay? After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Interesting language, isn't it? It's interesting language. Um, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure, is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. You think, okay, Israel's going to really repent here. It's looking pretty good, isn't it? The repentance is looking like it's coming. 
Now, this language, um, keep, keep that the third day he will raise us up. Look, keep your hand there and look over at Hosea 13 briefly. Hosea 13. And, and look at verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. What? Have you guys ever heard any of that language before? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Right? About the resurrection. What's that? Yep, in reverse. And it's in 1 Corinthians 15. What's fascinating about this, I think, what's being pointed to here is Israel's pretending a kind of repentance. They're, they're, they're signaling a kind of repentance. And there's a pointing to a resurrection of the dead on the third day. A thing in which death is put to death. Right? Yet Israel's repentance is not true, which you're going to see in the next passage. It's not a true repentance. But this language of resurrection and the death of death gets applied to who? Jesus. And then us in him. Because Jesus becomes, if it, or is, does become, is true Israel. He is the one who ushers in the repentance that the northern and southern kingdom never quite reach the restoration they're waiting for. You're going to see that especially when we get to Joel. But you'll see that language in Isaiah, Joel. When the Spirit is poured out, the restoration of Israel's begun. But the Spirit's only poured out when the new David is crushed for the iniquities of his people and then takes his throne to rule and reign. Then the Spirit's poured out and these things are all prophesied in the Old Testament, um, pointing to the resurrection of the dead, the restoration of Israel, and, and all of this kind of language, which comes in the Christ. Okay? Um, but Israel isn't quite, um, doesn't quite ever get there until the Christ comes. That's what you guys are going to find. They stay under oppression all t- the whole time, don't they? In some way or another. You see little bursts of repentance here and there? but nothing that's really lasting. And they never leave um, oppression from foreign nations, if you will, until the Christ comes. And then sin and death no longer oppress God's people in the ultimate sense. Right? The ultimate sense. Okay. Um, Look at verse 4. We're going to see how their penitence isn't all that exciting. As though it's looking good in verses 1 through 3, verses 4 is going to tell you it's not so great. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, northern kingdom? What shall I do with you, O Judah, southern kingdom? Your love is like a morning cloud. Okay, what's a morning cloud like? There in the morning and then does what? Huh? Very temporary. We don't understand that in Bakersfield because we don't get clouds very much. And when we do, they tend to stick around longer. But if you're from places where the clouds come through a lot, um, like a morning cloud just comes in, like dew that goes away early. You know what that's like. You wake up in the morning on a hot summer day and there's some dew on the grass and it's gone quick, right? Okay? Like dew that goes away early. That's what their love is being compared to. What does that comment about their love for God sound like? Is that very promising kind of love? 
like a morning cloud like dew that goes away early? No, it's just this kind of temporary, we love you, Lord, forgive us, and off to our law-breaking again. Shallow, false faith, temporary faith, okay? Um, this doesn't apply to, to Christians now, right? Christians aren't like this. Okay, okay, so, all right, pardon the sarcasm. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, I don't care about your, um, your statements that you love me. So what? Be faithful. Right? This empty love, I love the Lord, now I'm going to run off to law-breaking as much as I want, is useless to him. Because what we then, we'll then call that in the Christian life is, we'll say that true faith does what? What's the word we'll use? In tulip, it's the P? Perseveres. perseveres. True faith perseveres. The love of God that's created in you by the Holy Spirit is steadfast. Okay? Different than your love. The love, of God, the love that's in you naturally, like a morning cloud. Right? The love that is created in you by the Spirit of God, steadfast. Perseveres. You guys understand the difference there? Okay? And he's like, I'm not interested in your sacrifices. I'm, I'm interested in steadfast love. Right? Your, long-term, your, your empty religion doesn't do... Doesn't, I'm not interested in that. Okay? Next statement. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I want you to know me. Just bring burnt offerings. So what? He, he's, did God command burnt offerings and sacrifices? Yes. See, God is not opposed to religion. God is opposed to empty or false religion. You guys understand the distinction there? Empty or false religion is abhorrent to him. Now look what he's going to go on and say about Israel. One of um, the most, I think, um, biblically agreed upon texts in the history of the church until recent centuries. Um, Verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. That's a fascinating statement. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Was Adam under a covenant? How does this work? Oh, there we go. Okay. It doesn't work well. Adam violated a covenant. Right? Okay. This is important. Hugely important. Did Adam violate a covenant? What does Hosea 6 7 say? Okay? He's saying that Israel, Israel violated a covenant, right? We know that Israel violated a covenant like who? Like Adam. Okay, it doesn't mean their covenant's exactly the same. Their behavior is exactly the same. God gave Israel a covenant, they violated it. God gave Adam a covenant, he violated it. That covenant with Adam 
we call the, I'm going to put cow here. That just stands for covenant of works. Okay? Okay? Um, <laughs> we, we call the covenant of works. Right? This is the covenant that God gives Adam in the garden. You guys know how the covenant's marked out. Adam, I've placed you here. You are going to work the land, or the garden, right? Work, and that word in the Hebrew there is that priestly service. And you're going to guard it, keep it. Work it and keep it. Tells him this. And then he says, and I put these trees here. You can eat any of the trees that are good for food, uh, fruit. They're good, all good for food. You can eat them. There are two trees here that are almost like sacraments, if you will. Um, you may not eat from this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You may, you may if you don't eat from this tree, if you, if you will, if you um, endure the probation of the test and don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may eat from the tree of life and live forever. Okay, but if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's going to happen to you, Adam? You will surely die. In the Hebrew, you will die, die, right? The Hebrews have a concept for being mostly dead, like the princess bride, right? <laughs> mostly dead, okay, right? So just die, not die, die, right? Which is all the way dead, okay? You will surely die, and you will die, die, right? Um, he says, it, 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 you're not mostly dead. He's not a semi-Pelagian, right? God isn't. God is a full-blown Augustinian here. You will be dead, Okay? And so he's saying, you will die, die, right? There's that covenant with Adam. I, I hear a lot of guys say, that, that word, like Adam, could be translated, Adam could be translated like man. So say, like men or like man, you violated the covenant. Men violate covenants, you violated the covenant. Okay? Um, the language here, though, has historically, I mean, I can, I can take you to Augustine for example, um, as far back as that, or further back than that, and show you that they've always said this is like Adam. It's only since the rise of, really, largely since the rise, um, uh, there, there is a, there's a tweak in the King James Version where they'll say like men, which I don't understand because it's in the singular. But where this is, they, they, though, the men of that generation, though, would have still said like Adam, right? Even though the translation is a little funky, I think, there. But, um, when you get to dispensationalism, they start denying that there was a covenant with Adam, right? Uh, in, the 18th cent- in the 19th century, 1800s, they start denying there was any covenant with Adam uh, because they say, well, there's, the, the word isn't appear in Genesis. Nothing, it never says covenant. Um, that's a word concept fallacy, incidentally, right? The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible either. We still believe in a Trinity. The question is, is the concept there, not is the word there? Yes, sir. It did it? Good. Well, that's what the Bible text will do. It'll explode your bad theology, right? The, the, the good news is, is that every time you have bad theology, you find it exploded by the Bible, right? If you spend the time studying it. But what's, what's fascinating here is we're, we're going to say all of Scripture, and I want to say like Adam, is very important because when you get to Paul in Romans, Paul's very convinced there was a covenant with Adam and that he was a federal head. How do we know that? Because in Romans 5... He says there's two federal heads. Adam, when he sinned, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. And Christ, 
when he was righteous in his righteousness, we are declared righteous. Do you guys follow me on that? And those are the two heads, and Israel is acting like Adam. Okay? All right. The second Adam will come, the true Israel will come, and write, if you will, what the first Adam and the typological Israel got wrong. Okay? Um, All right, so... Gilead is a city full of evildoers, verse 8. Tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. It's a fascinating thing because it comes back and forth between judgment and and salvation. Now, in chapter 7, which I'm not going to read for you, he gives you these, um, he, he has these divine complaints of deceitfulness you kind of see there. Um, look at verse 7 real quick. I'll just look at the first part of it. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity, iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember their evil. In other words, when they're committing all this sin, they don't consider that I remember. I'm paying attention. Okay? Now, remembering in this kind of biblical language does not mean that sometimes God forgets things and sometimes God remembers things. It's not talking about his omniscience or what he knows. Right? Remembering and forgetting is talking about whether he's holding it against you or not holding it against you. Does that make sense? So you hate forgive and forget. In one sense, that's a stupid saying. Okay? In the sense that if someone sins grievously enough against you, you may forgive them, but you likely won't forget it. Right? This is not how the mind works. Okay? Um, forgive and forget, in another sense, is a great saying. If by forget you mean, I'm going to forgive you, and though obviously that thing's in my mind because I know it happened, I'm not going to hold it against you. That's what I mean by forget. Does that make sense? Okay? I'm going to pretend as if I don't remember it happened, if you will. That's how I'm going to act toward you. Right? That's the kind of thing you're supposed to do in a marriage. Incidentally, gentlemen, if you're married, when you forgive your spouse, you're not supposed to, you know, a couple years later go, well, back then you did this. Didn't you already forgive that? (laughs) Right? You're not supposed to remember it in the sense of throwing it back in their face all the time. Right? Okay, so... um, (laughs) That's what he's getting at there. Now, he's just going to go on and talk about their infidelity, the covenant, um, and he's going to give all these judgment metaphors in chapter 7, which I'm, I'm not going to read. Just keep going because we'll never get done. I do want to get to their kind of false, at the end of chapter 7, their sort of false repentance again. Um, look at verse 13. Woe to them. What kind of word is woe? Curse. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Now look at this. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. So it's a fascinating statement. He's saying they're crying to me. They're on their beds wailing. You guys know what that imagery is? 
They're in bed literally weeping, wailing, crying out to the Lord. Now, if you saw someone weeping, wailing, crying out to the Lord on their bed, oh Lord, forgive me, oh Lord, forgive me, you know, said her crying, and you would assume they were what? Huh? Repentant. Looks pretty sincere to me. They're in their bed weeping, right? And yet he says, they don't cry to me from their hearts. So he's saying it's just false, false repentance. Paul will later call this worldly sorrow. He'll talk about it, the comparison, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Am I right about that? I think 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He will compare worldly sorrow to godly grief. And he'll say, how do you distinguish the difference? How do you know the difference? Worldly sorrow, you might sit around and weep and say, I'm sorry for all the consequences that happened to me. I hate what I've brought on my life. Um, But godly sorrow is, um, Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. I'm sorry for the way that I've, I've offended the Lord. The difference is worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to trying to clean up your mess, but it doesn't lead to repentance. Godly sorrow, I've sinned against the Lord, leads to repentance. Now I change directions. You understand the distinction? I'm going to tell you this is the hardest thing pastorally to ferret out with people. Because they come in, and especially in church discipline situations, I've repented, I've repented, I've wept, I've cried, I feel terrible, I've called out to the Lord, I'm here confessing, um, I'm telling you all about it, blah, 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 blah. But they never change directions. They never change directions. Their so- the sorrow is about the consequences and never about the sin against God himself. And so the direction never changes. It's just worldly sorrow. It's not godly grief. And that's what the Lord's saying. You can cry all you want on your bed, but it's not coming from your heart. You, 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 ha- you are basically rebelling against me. And your rebellion continues. You weep about the consequences when the curse comes upon you for your sin, but you continue the rebellion. You understand the point there? Okay? All right. Um, I would not tell you to draw conclusions about people quickly. Be patient. But if you're walking with a brother through um, repentance for sin, you pay, you, you'll, just a little time will tell. Right? Um, all right, if they keep returning to their, if they keep going back like a dog to its vomit, you know, you know, all right? Um, okay, so um, there's these divine complaints that come against them. They do not repent. Let me go to the next slide here. So he goes on and says, basically, you've, you violated my law. You're a cult ripe for destruction. Now, cult here is not cult in the negative sense of like, you, you, the cultist is, is the form of worship. You guys follow me on that? It's not that Israel has started a cult. In some ways they have, right? But he's, he's coming after the idea that, that they have, they have um, as a people, broken his law. They've, um, they've run after these false rulers and idols. They've uh, made fruitless foreign alliances, if you will. So they've tried to make foreign alliances with like Assyria, Egypt, etc., 
You guys remember that in Isaiah? They tried to do that with Egypt as well. Assyria. They, maybe these foreign nations will save us, right? They're not looking to the Lord. Um, they have an empty religious enthusiasm. Look at chapter 8. Um, verse 1, really quickly. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. That, again, is the Mosaic covenant. They've transgressed the law. They've, to me, they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. What kind of faith is that? When you're transgressing the covenant, violating the law, and crying out, we know you, God, what kind of faith is that? False faith again, right? Temporary faith. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. Look down at verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Right? In other words, going back into slavery. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. See, they've run after a kind of empty religious enthusiasm. They're building all these altars, and it's kind of a religious enthusiasm. You guys know what enthusiasm means, by the way? Okay? It's, it, in is from this Greek sense of having something in you, and it's, it's the, what you have in you is, is sort of this, I, this kind of idea of, of a God in you, enthusiasm. It's, it's, what, it's a tag that you would put on people who will be like, you know, spiritually enthusiastic. The Lord is in me and he's, I'm just having this experience of the Lord in me, right? And they, they, they do all kinds of worship stuff and then go out and rebel and sin like, like that stuff was just empty. Make sense? Okay. Um, it's really not tied to any kind of real godliness. That's why I constantly tell people, don't go to a church and assess whether you think the Spirit is there or not based upon how excited the people seem. You want to know if the Spirit's there or not? Check out their lives day to day. Look for the fruit of the Spirit, not the manifestations of the Spirit. You guys follow me on that? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Is that there? If so, the Spirit's at work. The word being taught, right? Not do people seem excited. Because you can go to a congregation of elderly folks, they're all over America, who love the Lord, who, are, who will look like you. Oh, this is cold, dead orthodoxy. And they're godly, faithful people. Right? And you go to a church where they're jumping all over the place, acting like they're the most excited religious folks ever, and all kinds of rampant sin is occurring. Okay? And so we need to be careful not to judge based on externals, right? Like, like that. You follow me on that? Okay. That's what God's coming after is that kind of external looks real religious, but it's just garbage, right? It's false. All right. So they don't fulfill their calling. He comes after them in, in chapters 9 through 11. After he's told them, you forsake the Lord, you're going off into Assyria, etc., in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about their corruption, how God has pursued them, how they have refused to, to um, they've really refused to be godly, right? 
I made you a luxuriant vine. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. In other words, what do they do with God's blessing of them as a vine? They go into idolatry. Okay? Um, Jesus will come along later and say, I am the true vine. Whoever remains in me bears much fruit. Whoever does not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into unquenchable fire. Right? Um, So these guys are caught up in a kind of false religion. How do we know that? Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. For now they say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Okay? You'll notice that all throughout. Whenever um, judgment's coming, it's compared to thorns and thistles, briars, just like in Genesis 3, right? This curse on the land. Um, they're false. Look at what, look at, by the way, some language you're going to see in Revelation 6. Look at verse 8. The high places of Avon, the sins of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Remember that in Revelation 6.16? It's talking about this coming judgment of the Lord. And look, from the days of Gabeah, you have sinned, O Israel. Pointing back to Judges 19. All right. Um, So they're in sin, yet the Lord loves them. Look at Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and offering to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, northern kingdom. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and, because, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. You, you, you hear his kindness to them, even though they keep doing what? Rebelling. Now, when he says, when Israel's a child, I, I loved him, and I, out of Egypt I called my son, what's he referring to? It's Exodus. He's telling the story of his covenant love to them, isn't he? I came and saved you in, in Egypt. Exodus chapter 4, he says, um, Moses is to go, to go to the Pharaoh and say, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. Right? I want to take my firstborn son out. So he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And he called him out of Egypt. This is a historical comment, isn't it? on God's love for Israel, and yet they still rebel against him. You guys follow that? I can't believe you've rebelled against me. I loved you. Look what I did for you. I brought you out of Egypt. Okay? You were my son, my firstborn son. I brought out of Egypt. I loved you. Keep your hand there. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 13. 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Okay? Herod searching for all the, the young boys, two years old and younger. Do you guys remember anybody doing that? To kill all the young boys, two years old and younger? Pharaoh was trying to do that, right? Okay? Take him to Egypt. Who? You know? <laughs> Watch this. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. Now notice, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What? What is Matthew talking about? How can Matthew say this was to, was to fulfill what I spoke by the prophet? What, what, when he spoke by the prophet Hosea, did that text in Hosea 11 require any fulfilling? Well, apparently it did. Would you have known that just by reading Hosea 11 on its surface without spending much time thinking about it? No. Right on the surface, you would have read Hosea 11 and thought, this is about who? Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. And it is. And what Matthew's telling you is this is also about the true Son of God coming out of Egypt. And he's saying that Israel was always typological of the one who would come out of Egypt, the Son whom he would call out of Egypt, who would not be disobedient to the covenant, ever. Right? Ever. That's why you'll later see Jesus, by the way, after his baptism, he goes into the water, right? As Israel coming out of Egypt went into the water. He comes up out of the water. He's called, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And he's taken out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights as Israel was dragged out into the wilderness for 40 years. And then he goes up on the mountain as, Israel, as Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And as Moses delivered the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, Jesus goes up on the mountain and he preaches a sermon largely on the Ten Commandments. Right? And he is true Israel. He is fulfilling everything they failed to do. Faithful to the end. Right? That's why when he comes up to John the Baptist and says, baptize me, John the Baptist is like, I can't baptize you. Right? And Jesus is saying, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Why does he need to be baptized? Because God commanded Israel to be baptized. And so Jesus needs to fulfill all righteousness. He needs to keep all of God's commands on their behalf. Make sense? Okay. What I'm saying is, like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenant. Unlike Adam and Israel, Jesus never transgressed the covenant. And thus he offers us a new covenant in his blood. Okay? Um, keeping the covenant of works for us. Is following that? All right. Um, let's drop down here in Hosea. He's going to compare them to a vine, a trained heifer, um, a beloved child he does in chapter 11. Then he's going to say Ephraim and Judah are now knaves and fools. Basically, they've become foolish. In chapters 11 and 12, he's going to talk about that. 
Jacob, he's going to have a section on Jacob then and now in chapter 12, basically saying that you've always been arrogant and self-reliant. You guys know Jacob, Genesis, arrogant and self-reliant a lot, right? Okay. Now he also believes, but he's arrogant and self-reliant. I mean, when you get to Hebrews, the only thing Jacob's commended for doing is sitting up in bed. Do you guys ever pay attention to that? In faith, Jacob sat up in bed and blessed his sons. Ooh, good. Wow, really? That was, that was you know? Uh, but he's commended for that nonetheless because he believes. But yeah, it is encouraging, isn't it? Because he still makes it into the Faith Hall of Fame. So don't feel, <laughs> if you will, right? He still makes Hebrews 11. As a guy who believes, there's still hope for you. But here's, here's what he does, right? He's, he's an arrogant, self-reliant kind of guy, right? And essentially what they're saying is, is that, that Judah and Israel are basically like him, arrogant and self-reliant, right? They're acting like him. So he comes after them in chapter 12 with regard to that. Then in chapter 13, he comes after Ephraim, and he says, then and now, you're, you're idolatrous and you show no gratitude, right? He's just going to, in other words, the reason I'm not stopping is because you've already seen these themes. They just keep coming. It's like they unfold over and over and over again. They're idolatrous. They have, they show no gratitude. Chapter 13 with Ephraim, the northern kingdom. And then he comes, he said, he talks about the future. So here's what I want to get to is chapter 14 with Israel and Yahweh and future restoration and repentance. And we'll conclude here. Um, and you can get this outline from me later, that it's, it's really by David Hubbard. Um, let's, let's read chapter 14. So you guys see how these cycles of, you keep sinning against me, judgment's coming. You keep sinning against me, judgment's coming. You keep being faithless, judgment's coming. You keep being a spiritual whore, judgment's coming. Right? I want to restore you, I want to restore you, I want to restore you, but you refuse to repent. You're, even when you sort of look like you're repenting, it's actually just half-hearted. It's not real. You're just showing worldly sorrow. Follow so far? Okay. I've blessed you in all these ways. I loved you like a wife. I loved you like a child. I redeemed you. I covenanted with you. I blessed you in myriad ways, and yet you ran after false gods. You kept breaking my law. You created a false religion. You're foolish and you're spiritually empty and you make alliances with ungodly kings and you will not trust me. Clear enough? Okay. Are these the themes you've seen throughout the prophets? Yes. Okay. Throughout the prophets, these are the themes. But I want to restore you. I will restore you. And there's these little pictures of this coming restoration. Okay. Look at chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God. In other words, we will not follow after false gods, follow after false political leaders, um, etc., we will repent, okay? Um, we will no longer say, by the way, you are our, gods, our, our God, and know the next phrase, to the work of our hands. We're not going to make any more statues and worship them, okay? In you, the orphan finds mercy. No, it's like we've become like an orphan child finding mercy only in you. And now notice, here's the Lord's response. If Israel says that, 
And when when he's saying to say that, he doesn't mean empty words here. Right? Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. That's what he's talking about, okay? Look what he says. If they're doing that, I will, verse 4, heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall, be, they shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. You hear that? The Lord is the vine, ultimately. He's really the root, and from him comes the fruit. This is why Jesus will later come in and say, I'm the true vine. Whoever remains in me will bear much fruit. Because the fruit on a branch comes from what? You're the branches, I'm the vine. Where does does the fruit generate from the branch? On a vine. The fruit shows up on the branch, but where is its genesis? In the vine or the root. If you have bad root on a tree, you won't have any good fruit on that tree. Make sense? The tree will be dead. You guys know that dead trees don't produce any fruit? You guys know that? Doesn't matter how many branches they have. Doesn't matter how many branches they have, right? Okay? Um, they produce bad fruit, some, you know, but the, in the analogy. But the point being here that the Lord is the one ultimately who produces any good fruit in you. Trust me. He wants to restore them. Now look, um, David Hubbard says it concludes with a statement about walking and stumbling. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Okay? In other words, those who know the Lord walk in his ways. Right? Um, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Because that's true, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields much fruit. Its leaves don't wither, right? They don't turn bad. This is what he's getting at. The old, the, at the end of the day, we come to understand that the blessed man is the Christ. That's why it's important we translate that properly. Blessed is the man, the only one who ultimately fulfills that calling. In Psalm 1 that we sing about is, is Israel, true Israel, the true son of God. And we do in him by the Spirit. Follow? Okay. Um, so Joel next week. That's the next book, right? Joel? Okay. That's what I thought. Not Joel Hepner next week. The book of Joel next week. If Joel, if you're not busy, you can prepare that book and teach it if you want. But uh, otherwise, I'll go ahead and do it. Um, Joel next Friday. Any questions? Sorry to give you a quick overview, but the point is not to exposit the whole text, but to let you see the themes. 
okay, and where they're driving. Joel's next week. Uh, we'll try to get through the whole book next week. Uh, I'm going to tell you the emphasis will be different. How much certain themes are emphasized will be different, but the themes will be the same. Themes will be the same. In every minor prophet, that's why we're going to kind of go quickly. So read the book of Joel for next week. The, the big emphasis in Joel you're going to see that's going to come out is in chapter 2, right? With uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the restoration of Israel. Okay? All right. Um, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the gift of your word. We're thankful that you so clearly continue to pursue us, though we're sinners, from the garden in the beginning when Adam and Eve fall, you come looking for them. And you have searched for us um, throughout Scripture as we've run and rebelled and sinned, most clearly seeking us out in the sending of your Son who came to seek and save the lost and the giving of your Spirit so that your church would be sent to preach the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth as you continue to seek and save those who are yours. We pray that we would um, be thankful for your graciousness to us, though we are sinners, that we would walk in godliness and repentance, that we would delight in your law, meditating on it day and night, and give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.